0: We had a wonderful time this past Friday night. Our school put on their spring, their annual spring concert, and Kathleen and Johan did an outstanding job. (laughs) Olivia, I loved your song when you were stomping and you were just frowning at everybody. Man, I felt it. That's from Matilda, right? Right. When I Grow Up, is that the name of the song? I wonder what will happen when I grow up. <laughs> What'd you say? Yeah, and by the way, Jerry, <laughs> they did a rap song from uh, Hamilton. That was awesome. And Jerry said in laughter, he said, if the founders of our church and school knew that we were doing rap in this church, they would be rolling over in their graves. And I say, let them roll. Because they rolled to Georgia and the rest of us stayed. That church is no longer this church. You know how I know? You're this church. We're not going to memorialize dead doctrines and dead men We have a life to live now, and we live amongst dead men walking. They better be our concern. Not honoring the dead men of the past. I care about honoring Christ. And if the men who honored Christ in the process are honored, well, praise God. But Christ must be honored. And uh, it was a great time on Friday night. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I wish I could tell you, or I wish I could, I can tell you, I wish I could impart to you the feelings I had this week of temptation to make my ministry about men and not about God. And that men could be me, it could be people besides me, but the temptation this week was great. To make my ministry about men and not about God. You hear all of these ways to grow your church. Ten ways to grow your church. If you're not doing this, your church will never grow. And you look and it's, oh my gosh, we're not doing that. And The temptation was really, really great this week. But the Lord made me so small this week. In such a wonderful way. Even this very morning, I stand before you not having much sleep. Kellen had uh, problems breathing last night, and we had to take him to the emergency room. And Steph actually stayed the entire night in the emergency room with her. Pray, Pray for her. She is an unbelievable mother. And he got home this morning. He had taken four Ibuterol treatments and hadn't slept all night. And if you know anything about Ibuterol, if you know anything about Kellen... That is the cocktail for destruction. That's the scientific formula for destruction. Ibuterol plus Kellen equals destruction. He was bouncing off the walls. I didn't sleep well, and I didn't have my sermon. I want to tell you this, just because I, not because I'm bragging, but I, I just want to tell you this. My sermon wasn't written, and I was tempted... To go, It wasn't completed, I should say. I was tempted to go in and just, okay, the church will forgive me. They'll excuse me. Uh, I'll tell them this is a sermon I had written before, and we'll do that. And I sat down. As I was driving in, I listened to just a seven-minute podcast with John Piper, and he said something that was so inspiring to me. I don't think I slept but an hour last night. And I sat in front of my computer from 8... Until 9.15, 9.16, I was late to Sunday school. 9.16 and wrote this entire sermon. The Lord put it on my heart. It was so amazing to watch God in his grace move me out of the way. And I, my whole prayer this morning was just, God, just get me out of the way. And you just say what your word says. And let's see what that does. And people say you can't teach these doctrines of, of, of the faith and of, of sola fide and sola gratia. You can't teach those because it, it inevitably leads people to fatalism. They assume God does everything. And I, I want you to leave this morning. I want you to leave this morning knowing that God does everything. Okay. That's my goal this morning. Okay, I succeed if you leave knowing how small you are and how big God is. That is just as simple as I can make it. If you leave here this morning knowing you're small and God is big, I've accomplished my task this morning. And that is not popular. And, and, and I'm telling you, everyone who was in my meeting on Tuesday knew that was, I wanted to make men big. God said, no, move out of the way. I'm going to make me big. I'm going to make you small. You know, you, you can't make men small without making God big. You have to do those two things at the same time. If you make men small without making God big, it's called abuse. Right? We call that abuse. Verbal abuse, psychological abuse or spiritual abuse. When you you make men small and that's it, you leave it there. If you make God big and don't make men small, you only tell a half-truth. You've got to tell both at the same time. It's got to be God is big in your smallness. God is so big and you are so small. In this process. And that's what I want to accomplish this morning. Before we do that, I I just want to begin with a word of prayer. Father, speak through me this morning. Thank you for this word you've laid on my heart. Let it be your word for this church. Amen. Sola gratia is the second part of our five sola series. And sola gratia is the Latin phrase for grace alone. All it means is grace alone. It's interesting, you're going to hear a lot of, you're going to hear five in particular, you're going to hear five things that say alone, but they're all alone together. But they're all a response to something else. So the reason why it's Scripture alone, it's because Scripture is the alone, infallible authority inerrant authority for god's people there will be no other helper for it and today grace alone is salvation is obtained by god alone and sincerely, just completely by his grace nothing else but his grace So I selected Sola Gratia to be second in my sermon series because God's grace is the foundation of our salvation. Without God's grace, we're not saved. This doctrine is strongly tied together with other doctrinal truths such as God's sovereignty. That means God's absolute rule over all of creation, both physical creation and spiritual creation, you think angels and demons, good and even evil, no matter how great or how small, as Scripture tells us, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing. So God's sovereignty is is vast. There's not there is not a pebble on the farthest moon. In the farthest reaches of this universe that God is not sovereignly in control of right now. There's not a a, a vapor or a drop of water that God does not cause to fall according to His will. That's the God of the Bible. And that's sovereignty. Sovereignty. And providence is God's directing all things great or small to work together. Great or small, good or evil, to work together by His will and for His will so that there is not a single thing in all the universe outside of His control. Every event that happens, happens according to God's directing purposes, including your salvation. Good and evil. So that when Joseph meets up with his brothers who tried to kill him and fake his death, he can say to them in the day of mercy, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So that even in evil in our life, even in wickedness, God means it for good. You say, was God in control of Hitler? Yes. Is God in control when when people die? Yes. What about children? Yes. What about rape? Yes. What about riches? Yes. What about gang violence? Yes. What about the president becoming the president? Yes. Well, what about yes? That's the God of Scripture. This also deals with the doctrine of God's grace as Gravity and has meaning for our understanding of soteriology, which is the study of salvation as a whole. Especially those doctrines of predestination and election. That is, God's choosing of persons unto salvation and His effectual calling. That is, the Holy Spirit's work of regenerating sinful human beings unto life within the parameters of time and space. God's grace encompasses... All of his dealings with human beings. Apart from grace, there is no salvation. Apart from grace, there's no salvation. Apart from God's grace alone, man would never do enough. Including have his own faith to procure his salvation. Grace is God's unmerited favor of sinful human beings. Grace is God's free decision to act on behalf of sinful human beings who have nothing to their name concerning the righteousness that God requires, save for that, the demerited sins that they put, used to put Christ on the cross. Grace is not just unmerited favor. It's demerited favor. Grace is what God does after you contributed to the cross the sins that put Christ there. The only thing that you've contributed to your salvation are the sins that put Christ on the cross. That's it. And the reformers were committed to this. Here's how one confession of faith says it. It says those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause, moving him thereunto. I want to be very specific this morning. The doctrine of sola gratia is about God, not you. It is about what God has done in salvation and not what you have done for your salvation. It is about what only God can do for us and what is impossible for us to do for ourselves. Sola gratia is the sweetest doctrine there is simply because it takes us on a wonderful journey away from ourselves and into the enjoyment of the glory of God. So now if you have your Bibles, I want to read this passage one time through without pausing so that you're going to hear its flow and you'll pick up its major points. I'm going to read it one time through. I want you to follow the flow, look at the passage, and treat it like it's a thermal map. You know a thermal map for my young guys, well not my young guys, for my middle-aged guys who remember the movie Predator? Remember, Predator could only ever see the hot parts and everything else was blue. Frank, I know you know what I'm talking about. And Predator could see only the hot points and everything else was blue. I want you to look at this passage this morning when we read it for the first time, and I want you to see the what are the hottest parts of this passage. Don't get bogged down in the blues and the cools that are blue and the light purples. I want you to see the reds and the yellows and the whites, the, the hottest Part to this passage. And then we're going to read it and I'm going to break it down and see how it informs our understanding of grace alone. Here's what it says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul doesn't care about run-on sentences. He's going to make his point and he's going to break it down little by little. But God, being rich in mercy... That we should walk in them. I want to break this down this morning. And see if I can't make this section come alive. Look at verses 1 through 3. This is a very interesting passage. It speaks of living in death. Living in death. It says in the very first verse. And you were dead in the trespasses. And sins. Paul is speaking to a people who have abandoned their old life of trespasses and sins. The past tense of the verb to be, that is you were, shows that Paul assumes that there has been a resurrection of sorts in the lives of those whom, to whom he is speaking. You were dead, now you, you were. So if you were dead, that means we can assume you're now alive. Non-believers don't really speak that way. For non-believers, they don't speak about being dead. That's a a strange thing to non-believers and people who don't believe in life after death of being dead. You're dead and you stay dead, right? Nobody, Nobody comes back to life after they're dead, and I mean really dead. I don't mean resuscitation. I mean dead. In fact... The word that Paul uses here in the Greek is the word nekros, meaning a dead corpse. This is the root of the word where we get our English word necrosis, meaning the death of cells and tissues or in organs due to disease, injury, or loss of blood supply. When necrosis sets in, it's irreversible, it's dead. The part of the body that has experienced necrosis has to be cut out or cut off, but it no longer has any use. It's dead. Necrosis. The the brown recluse spider, they live here in South Florida. The good news is they're recluses, so they try and hide from humans. The bad news is their bite is extremely poisonous. And the type of venom, not all venom is the same, not all poison is the same, but the type of venom that the brown recluse uses is called necrosis. So that when it bites and the venom begins to set in, it kills all the cells and tissues and everything that it touches to the point where if you don't get this thing taken care of ASAP, they got to cut your limb off because it's what? Dead. It's dead. There's no usefulness to it. So let's get this in our minds this morning. Paul sees the life before Christ not as one of sickness or injury, but as one of death. The life before Christ is death. But in verses 2 and 3, he begins with in which, which means verse 3 is connected to verse 2. It links two and one together. And he's going to explain what this death looks like. He says, you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if our minds are sensitive to logical inconsistencies, you will immediately pick up on the apparent contradictions. If you're you're looking at this, you see that Paul just said we were dead, and then he uses words like, but we walked, we followed the course, that means the spirit of the age. Jesus describes it as those who grew up amongst the thorns and were choked out by the worries of life and of money. So Paul says you're dead, but then in verse 2 he said, but we walked in death, we followed the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, that's Satan." In the sons of disobedience, they're alive. We all once lived, we all once lived in the state of death, carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. What's my point? My point is that the death that Paul is talking about is very much alive. It looks alive. It looks vibrant. It's walking, it's carrying. It is, it is being energized. That word worked there by the Spirit is the same word he uses in 120, talking about what is worked in us. How God has the word, the Greek word is enegeo, to give energy to. So there is a spirit. Satan is supplying energy to those who are dead. Do we have a contradiction here? Well, we know, of course, we don't have a contradiction for two reasons. Number one, we know God's Word cannot lie. And a contradiction is a lie. And we know, or at least we should know, New Testament theology and its teaching that sinful nature is a state of spiritual death leading ultimately to physical death, leading to eternal death. So we know that the death that Paul is speaking about is not our physical death. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then he begins to explain how alive that death really is. Because he is not speaking of our physical death, but our spiritual death. And this is not just to the Ephesians. Paul says to the Ephesians, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not only does Paul include himself by saying we, so we all once lived there, including the apostles, but he also includes you and me too. He even includes the Pope. Everyone. He says, what? Like the rest of mankind. All dead. Following the passions of this world. The spirit of the age. So Paul is speaking to all of us. This means that all human beings are in their original state, dead to God, though they are alive and very much alive to sin. Look at verses 4 and 6, through 6. But God. I know the text doesn't have a period here, but it, it is essential that we stop for a moment and hear the hallowedness of these words, but God. When Paul wishes to tell us of how we might switch from death to life, he knows that dead people don't raise themselves, but it requires God to create life out of non-life, to make from nothing something. To speak to dry bones and breathe his breath into the nostrils of our lifeless skulls. And if we too quickly read over these words, but, meaning you were dead, and we know what the word "but" means. It's a conjunction that takes us away from what we were just talking about, right? When the girl sits you down, guys, and she says, "Hey, I think you're a really nice guy." You know, you're, I start hearing the laughter. I hear the laughter already. I think you're a really nice guy, and I, I find you attractive. But. What does the word "but" do? It takes you away from what you just heard. So you know when you hear but, she's about to tear you up. But you live at your mama's house. And I don't want no scrub. A scrub is a guy who can't get no love from me. That's what she's meaning. So, so, but okay, but, but listen to this. But takes us away from where we just were, and so sometimes but is a good thing, right? So, but, but you were you were dead. You were dead, but. God made you alive. You were dead, but God made you alive. So it takes us from the terrible news to something very special. It also takes us away from ourselves and towards God. But what? But God. Not but you. Not but your faith. Not but your church. Not but the Pope. Not but the pastor. Not but your race. Not but your wealth. Not but your, your gender. But God. But what? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there's a filler here, but there's two points, and they connect, and we can, we can just take them out and put a little ellipses there, and those are the blue parts, and we're going to come back and look at those blue parts, but the red hot part here is, but God made us alive. That's the red part of this passage. But God made you alive when you were dead. We who were dead in trespasses and sin have now been made alive. We have moved from death to life. And I hope we understand this basic truth that dead persons can't make themselves alive. Every casket over here in this cemetery has all the liberty they will to raise themselves to life. You won't like it if you're walking past it. They've got all the freedom to raise themselves to life anytime, right? Nobody would say, get back down in that grave. You don't have the right to be alive. You you know that they used to bury people who fell into comas. They would bury them and they would put, it got so bad that they would I don't remember how they found out. I think they found scratch marks inside the caskets when they would bury up bones or when they'd come up from a flood. And they found that people had been buried alive, so they used to put a little string down into the casket. And those who were working the graveyard shift, do you know why they worked the graveyard shift? It was to hear the bell ring should somebody be buried alive. Bing, 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 bing. You imagine working the graveyard shift. (laughs) And hearing that... It's also where we get the phrase "dead ringer." When people and this literally happened, when people were buried alive and they were in town, people would say, "That looks like Bob," and someone would say, "I guess he was a dead ringer." Ring, ring, ring." But we know when people are dead, they have no liberty, they have no, no ability to raise themselves to life, when they're dead. They can't. They can't. They're dead. It's done. Remember, necrosis doesn't just mean dead. It means useless. It it can't do anything anymore. So it is very dead. It is very useless. Amen. I mean... (laughs) Somebody's probably trying to turn that off, I know. Good. While you're doing that, i got to find my spot anyway. Yes. Oh, is it you? We can forgive him. He is, after all, the most interesting man in the world. I don't always make jokes, but when I do... I make him at Moises' expense. (laughs) So God has to be involved in our life if we're going to live. That was the whole point to the resurrection. There was a man who was dead. He raised to life and everybody went, my Lord and my God, it's God. Why? Because only God gives life to dead people. Only God. No one else. Well, why did He make us alive? Was it because of our good works? No. The passage has already stated that our death was spiritual death, and that was in trespasses and sins, so that there were no good works. Well, was it because of our faith? No, we've already seen that dead people don't have the ability to do anything, and that is even have faith. Well, was it because of our race or gender or sexuality? No, no, and no. God made us alive because He is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So, you're telling me that God made us alive for no other reason than His mercy and love? You're telling me that God gave me something I didn't deserve? No. No. I am telling you that God gave you the opposite of what you deserved. We were all dead in trespasses, i.e., we were God's enemies. Yet because of his mercy and love, while we were yet sinners, God made us alive. It would be like me bringing a toy to my son, giving him that toy, looking at that toy, taking that toy, breaking it, throwing it down, and looking at me and saying, Daddy, I hate you. I only want what I want. And I go back and say, you know what, son? I love you, even though you hate me. You cannot sing the hymns we sing in the church until you understand that that's what God has done for you. I have a time. There was a time, I'm going on like two hours of sleep, my dad, he told me, he said, he he gave me a football and he said, don't take it down to Pepper Park. Don't take anything to Pepper Park. (laughs) So I took my football down to Pepper Park and I was throwing the football around, I was at a Friday night football game and some kid said to me, hey man, let me see your football. So I just thought he was my friend, and he wanted to play football with me. So I threw him the football. My dad had told me, if you do, you're going to be in trouble. And that guy took the football, and the way Pepper Park's set up is it has like several parks. And he threw the football to a guy in between the two parks, who threw it to another guy in another park, who threw it to another guy in the parking lot, who threw it to a guy down the street, And before I could blink my eyes, my football had been stolen, and I felt so stupid, and then I felt terror, because I was going to be in trouble. So the next day, my father asked me, where's your football? Let's go play. And I had to tell him what happened. And he walked away. And I didn't see him for a couple hours. And I deliberately disobeyed him. And I deserved punishment. He told me I was going to be in trouble. And he went and he bought me another football. I miss my father very dearly. And he gave it to me, and we went and we played. And I can't help but read that passage of scripture every time that says, If your earthly fathers who are evil, even your earthly fathers, here's, here's my father doing a good work for a son, a very gracious work for a son, and Christ says, Your earthly father's still evil. Even in his good work, even in this amazing grace that he's going to show you, he's still evil. And if he is evil, And knows how to give good gifts. How much more your heavenly father gives good gifts. Until you understand that salvation is completely God's work. You don't get it. Don't cheapen it by adding even the shred of faith. That you think you had to accomplish it. Don't. You miss it. You want to see what a works, righteousness, faith is like? Go to the mosque on Friday. Go to the synagogue on Friday. And listen to them wail. You want to see what a salvation by grace alone is like? I'm in here on Sunday and sing, oh, worship the King. That's the difference. Do not corrupt salvation of God's work by adding even the shred of your effort. I'm telling you that God has given you what you did not deserve at all. He gave you the opposite of what you deserved. Look at verses 5 and 7. How? How did God make us alive? So he made us alive. He did it because we didn't deserve it. How did he do it? Together with Christ. Raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God made us alive by his grace through Christ Jesus. God does not show His grace by simply overlooking our sin. God cannot overlook sin. He is absolutely just, absolutely good, absolutely holy, and He cannot tolerate sin. So it requires that if God is going to be gracious towards us, He must punish sin in His Son. Think about how bad it would be if a murderer stood on trial and the judge just simply said, I forgive you. And they said, according to what? And he said, nothing. I just forgive him. You say, that would be great if you were the murderer. But if you were the victim's family and the murdered, you wouldn't be saying that's great. God cannot simply overlook your sin. He is holy and just And so how will he make us alive? How will he do it? Through Christ. God made us alive by grace through Christ Jesus. God does not show his grace by overlooking our sin. Grace is free for us, but it costs God his son. God's love for us, His rich mercy, is not simply His forgetting our sins. God had to pay the debt owed to Himself that we ourselves accrued by our trespasses and sin. We could not have paid our debt off. But God, who is rich in mercy, paid our debt with the currency of the cross of Christ. For by grace you have been saved. If all are dead and trespasses and sin, then all are saved by grace. Not a single person can earn their salvation. I talk to too many people who still tell me I'm a good person. What are you talking about? No, you're not. Good is defined by God, not you, not society. And God says, to me, you're dead in trespasses and sin. Well, are we free to earn our salvation? Of course we are. As free as any corpse in a grave is free to live. But do we have the ability to? And of course not. Therefore, God, by His grace, has made us alive in the cross of Jesus Christ, His Son. This is all so that we might decrease and God might increase. Salvation is not what we did. It is what God did in Christ. Therefore, our salvation makes us small and God big. No flesh will glory in His presence because no flesh has saved itself. Remember that the only thing you've contributed to your salvation is the sins that put Jesus on the cross. Our worship of God, therefore, should reflect the future glory of God for our salvation. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But our worship of God is so small today. It's because our theology of God is so small. If our theology of God was big, our worship would be big. But we've made worship small because our God is small. We still think that our salvation is upheld and preserved by ourselves, but salvation, when taught by the Bible, brings us to our knees in thankfulness to God for the immeasurable riches of grace, of His grace alone. Grace alone makes us love God, and anything else robs God of his glory. Finally, you know these verses, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Aha, says the Arminian. There it is. I knew it. By our faith in God, we're saved. God did 99.9% of the work in our salvation, and we did. Point zero one of the work in our salvation. We just believed and then God made us alive. No. If you believe that, you have not read that we were dead, but God made us alive. Through faith cannot therefore mean that we have done anything. Why? Because dead people do nothing. Certainly we believe, but only because God has given us a heart that has faith. God has made us alive in Christ, for no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. No one can come to Christ in faith unless the Father grants it to Him. Remember those two little words that sum up our entire message, but God. And Paul says, this is not your own doing. Right after it, he follows it up. Even the faith you have is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is not your own doing? Anything and everything that accompanies your salvation is not your own own doing. If it were your own doing, it would mean that you earned your salvation from God. But what does verse 8 say? Salvation is what? Your earnings? Salvation is what you deserve now that you have faith? What does it say? It is a what? It is a gift from God. You know, in in the States, we always, around Christmas time, we feel obligated to give people gifts that they got us. So sometimes we even re-gift the very gift they gave us. And so you get that card from them and you open it in front of them and it says, Oh my gosh, it's a Bonefish Grill gift card. I got you the same thing, but I left it at home. And then you walk back home, get the card, and put that same Bonefish Grill gift card back in the card, and say, here it is. You didn't gain anything, but you feel obligated once you got the gift to give somebody else a gift, right? Right? That's how every woman feels around anniversary time. Otherwise, guys, they would never get us gifts. It's our job to get the big special gifts. And they get us a gift. A day away from the kids. No. But that's not God. Nope. Nope, 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 nope. God gives us a gift without expecting anything in return. God has given us our salvation in every part down to the very breath He puts in our lungs that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord so that salvation is entirely His work. Because he will get all the glory and he will not share his glory with anyone, even you. So our salvation is, as Paul says, not our own doing. And it is not a result of our works. Well, if it's not a result of our works, then what is salvation a result of? It is a result of grace. Our passage defines grace this morning in this way. God's riches in mercy. God's saving love for persons who were dead. God's saving love for persons who were his enemies. Grace is defined as God's love for dead people and trespasses and sin. Grace is defined as his immeasurable riches of grace. Can't even quantify it. And kindness, all demonst- uh, demonstrated toward those who have been saved in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he says, no one may boast. This does not mean that all boasting is excluded. It just means that a certain type of boasting is excluded, namely any boasting in ourselves. That is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our praise and worship hour during every Sunday service ought to be the loudest boast fest you've ever seen. All hail the power of Jesus' name. I mean, we ought to sing it. We ought to boast about it. We ought to be arrogant in Him. I see, I see faces right now. My, I am not playing with you right now. I am your pastor and I am telling you until you get that as I said several weeks ago until I see the trees moving I am not gonna be convinced that God's Spirit is on this place Until then until I see forgiveness taking place and love of God big I'm not gonna be impressed Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We can boast in the Lord. We ought to be braggadocious. We ought to be, as John Piper calls it, we ought to be hedonist, engorging ourselves on God. Do you know that God permits drunkenness and gluttonous when it's, when it's drunkenness and gluttonous in Him The problem with drunkenness and gluttonous in food and alcohol is that you've made food and alcohol your God and not Him. But He lets you boast in the Lord. You may be filled, listen to that word, with the, what does the scripture say? Be not drunk with wine where it is in excess, but what? Be filled, get your fill from the Holy Spirit. Be drunk off of God's glory. Paul says there's nothing in the body. You put in alcohol in your body. You put in food in your body. It's not what makes you clean. It's what comes out of you. It's when food and alcohol and sex and drugs and your work and your children and your spouse and anything and football and baseball and basketball, it's when those things become God. That's when we're boasting about something other than Him. Scripture begins the first two commandments as what? Have no other God before me. That means don't worship God or false gods or worship God falsely. And have no graven images. That means don't worship other gods. First two commandments. Because human beings are made to worship. You'll worship something. You are worshiping something right now. You are boasting in something right now. And it's either going to be in Christ where it's permitted or in everything else where it's sin. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Finally, why? Because in verse 10, we are his workmanship. That word workmanship means God created us. Paul said it this way, we are the clay and God is the potter. And in this sense, he has molded all believers to be vessels for honorable use, namely good works in light of Christ's sacrificial work for us. So what is the place of works then in the life of the believer? It is that God has made us to be vessels of good works so that we can only do what God has made us to do, good works. Christians don't earn their salvation by their works. But Christians who are saved demonstrate their salvation in their works. Justification equals faith plus works. It's not faith plus works equals justification. It is justification, God saving sinners, that equals faith plus works. For we are his workmanship. Then he says, how are we his workmanship? Created in Christ Jesus that means we look like Christ Jesus. As Christ said, die to yourself and follow me. As Paul said, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus. We read the statistics that Americans are Christian. That this is a Christian nation. Just think about your immediate neighbors. Do they look like Christian Think about what you see on television and what you see in politics. Does that look Christian to you? Does that look like the workmanship of God? No. Christians are known by their works. You show me your faith without works, James said, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Because faith without works is whats what? Is what? Is what? It's just like the old faith. Dead. So what does sola gratia mean for you this morning? It means two things. It means probably more than two things, but I know you guys got to get to Piccadilly. So let me give you just two things. It means that every benefit in this life comes from divine grace to both believers and non-believers. When you see believers or non-believers with great things in their life, praise God. God gave it to them. It's God who did that. It's God who causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's God who causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Wherever you see good, know that that's God. And wherever you see evil, know that it's through God and for God for good. So that even in evil, God is sovereign Lord. Finally, it means this. It means that Christians make God a big deal and make themselves very small. My goal this morning was to make you very aware that you have been saved completely and utterly by God's grace so that in response to the knowledge of God's good gift, you might run and show grace to others that you might run and live in that workmanship in Christ Jesus. Do not be like the person who looks in the mirror and walks away forgetting what he looked like. Don't merely hear the word this morning. Do what it says. I don't do altar calls for a very good reason. I grew up in this church, and I saw many people come down that very aisle and stand right here with tears, And then a month later, never see him again. You know what? If you have resolved today to follow Jesus, we will know that you have followed Jesus when we put you in the grave. It is not a one-time thing. Christians will demonstrate that they are God's workmanship. They will demonstrate that God has done everything by their gratitude for what he has done for them. Let's pray. God, you are so big, we are so small, and we are so happy that you have made us small. We are so happy that you are so very big. And so we praise you this morning and thank you for the salvation. Lord, how do we honor the gift you've given us of salvation? I don't know, Lord. Challenge us. I pray, Lord, that the knowledge of your goodness and your bigness and salvation will be demonstrated in this church, that we'll be able to see in our lives that we really believe you're that big, that we really understand what you did for us by how we do for you. Let this church have the mind of Christ in the knowledge of your grace. Amen. Would you stand as we close in song?